Western leaders meet Syrian rebels in Rome, but will they give them what they want? Can the MOD make £11 billion worth of savings over the next 10 years? And Arctic convoy veterans are told they will receive medals, but it is too late for some. All of my chums who should have had that medal, they haven't received it. Now it's too late for them. Hello, I'm James Hurst in for Kate Chabot. The new American Secretary of State, John Kerry, is in Rome where he's been meeting leaders of the Syrian opposition. Ahead of the meeting, he was hinting at a shift in US policy. In a news conference after the discussions, he offered up some $60 million worth of non-lethal aid, things like rations and medical equipment, perhaps vehicles, but not weapons. Britain's Foreign Secretary is also at this Friends of Syria meeting. Earlier this week, William Hague called for more to be done to help the rebels. We must significantly increase our support for the Syrian opposition on top of our large contributions to the humanitarian relief effort, and we are preparing to do just that. In the face of such murder and threat of instability, our policy cannot stay static as the weeks go by. Well, Mr Haig has said that Britain will send equipment that we haven't sent before. That still, though, doesn't include weapons, although he wouldn't rule it out for the future. Now, earlier this week on the BBC's Newsnight, former Prime Minister Tony Blair called for British intervention in the crisis. We don't have to put our own boots on the ground, but I do think we should be taking a far stronger line on Syria because I think, in the end, if we don't intervene in Syria and you carry on with this number of people dying... You carry on with a situation where increasingly, I think you'll find in the opposition forces, it's the more extreme elements that take charge. We are going to end up with a very, very big problem further down the line. When you debate the wisdom of intervention versus non-intervention, non-intervention is also a decision, it's a policy and it has consequences. Well, with us this week, Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University and, as always, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Professor Rogers, if I can start with you, uh, what Tony Blair is talking about there kind of ring, perhaps rings bells with people. In a sense, politicians are having to choose the least worst option here, aren't they? Uh, they are, and uh, I think the American view very strongly is to be extremely cautious about providing armaments to the rebels the background to all of this is the slow but really steady rise in the more um, jihadist elements within the rebel forces. There are two things happening at the same time. The rebels are largely disorganised and there are more and more reports of rebel units being out of control and looting and the rest and losing support among the wider population, while at the same time the Islamic groups, the Islamist, more jihadists, uh, are really increasing in number and they have much more influence basically because they're more dedicated, they don't loot and they're also very competent. Quite a lot of them were trained against US troops in Iraq, that's one of the ironies. So overall the Americans are really very cautious in private about what they're doing and they do not want to see a post-Assad Syria which, if not dominated, has a very large um, influence by the jihadist element. So, but what are the consequences of of therefore uh, of it in intervening what are the consequences of not intervening well if they intervene if we're talking about um, a no-fly zone uh, extending even to attacks air attacks on assad's forces 
then that may well be feasible. They'd have to put a lot of forces into it. But this will be yet one more major Western military intervention in an Arab country, which would be likely to cause civilian casualties and may be more difficult than others because the Syrians do still have some quite advanced anti-aircraft weaponry. The consequences of not doing anything, though, are very grim because of all the loss of life in Syria. What one has to remember is this is still at root a really proxy conflict. The Saudis want the rebels to win, are determined to see that. The Iranians are determined to prevent that. And beyond that, you have the West and Russia. And unless you can bring those parties together to some extent, it's difficult to see how this is going to end anytime soon. Christopher, the, the messaging coming from William Hague and from Britain sounds perhaps keener to get more involved, to get something done. Why does Britain seem to be feeling more interventionist, even if not directly intervening? Well, the cynic would say that the, 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 the British are going very much going along with the Saudis and the Qataris, and the Saudis are very big arms buyers from the United Kingdom. And uh, Britain is, is, is very, very aware of that. And also, um, they know that they can't actually put weapons in there themselves. So what they do, they facilitate it. might even be money, except the Qataris and the Saudis are paying for it all. What is now coming up, and, and people are starting to say in the Foreign Office and reminding the Secretary of State, reminding William Hague, which the Americans have already worked out for themselves because the, because the Israelis have pointed this out, uh, Assad ain't lost yet. Now, they're not saying that he's going to be there, he's, he's going to overcome this. But if you take one, one particular place, Aleppo, think of all the film footage you've seen, think of all the reports that you've seen about, you know, rebels in Aleppo, etc. The rebels haven't got Aleppo. And they say there is still a big organisation. And with that big organisation comes, I mean, uh, Paul was just talking about uh, anti-aircraft uh, weapons, for example. There are 5,000 roughly shoulder-held or fired uh, weapons. And they say, where are those going to go when the whole thing collapses? Ask the Iranians. And, uh, Paul Rogers, you were, you were talking about some of the uh, uh, divisions among the, the, the rebels themselves. That, and that seems to be actually spilling into some fighting between them. I mean, is the West actually seeing a fight against Assad that is going to, to, to break up? That is happening to some extent. There are quite a lot of divisions among the rebels. What is worse, though, and remember that you've had these young men who've been fighting now for 18 months or more, what is worse is that the rebels in their almost routine behaviour, attending to act like militias in particular parts of particular cities with just looting, summary executions and the rest. And in the middle of this, which is steadily getting worse, you have the Islamists who are holding together, far more organised, far more disciplined. And on quite frequent occasions, because they are effective, um, other rebel militias will actually even be led by them because they know they have an effect. So it's these two things happening at the same time, which makes it... It's one of the reasons, as I say, why the Americans are being very cautious about full-scale intervention. Bri briefly, Christopher, we've had meetings before, we've had pledges before, we've had aid before, and yet they're still fighting and dying. Uh, do, do, do the West actually have any options or new ideas? Here? Uh, they haven't got new ideas, but the Saudis and the Qataris are pressing on one side and they're leading the... John Kerry, the new American Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton's successor, has one thing in mind... Just supposing there is a conclusion and the so-called rebel groups get into some sort of power in Damascus, there will be the most almighty bloodbath between them. And that is the uncertainty which nobody can anticipate. OK, Christopher, thank you very much. Gentlemen, both stay with us, please. 
Still to come, everything you need to know about America's new defence secretary and it's Pope Benedict XVI's last day in the job. We will look at the role of his Swiss guards. This week, the US Senate finally confirmed the appointment of their new Defence Secretary, Chuck Hagel. So, who is he and why is it taking so long? Gisela Waldron has more. Charles Timothy Chuck Hagel has been described as a straight-talking maverick and a hard Republican with his own ideas. The 66-year-old is a former Nebraska senator and a decorated war veteran, having served in Vietnam where he was awarded two Purple Hearts, one for saving the life of his own brother, and he still has the shrapnel lodged in his chest to prove it. In fact, he's the first enlisted man ever to lead the Pentagon. Seeing the horrors of war are said to have shaped his view of military action as the last resort, to be used only after all diplomatic options have failed. After military service, he took various jobs before a stint at the Veterans Association, followed by making his fortune in the early years of the mobile phone industry. He was elected to the Senate in 1996 and again in 2002, but his relations with the Republican Party have often been strained. Some have never forgiven him for his fierce criticism of George W. Bush during the Iraq War. Mr. Hagel's confirmation as U.S. Defense Secretary was stalled by Republicans because he said a strike on Iran would bring chaos and worse. And by saying so, he was seen as a critic of Israeli policy. However, his first crisis on the job is not likely to be anything that happens overseas. He's taking charge at the exact moment a fierce budgetary fight is raging in Washington over looming spending cuts. Uh, Christopher Lee, these looming spending cuts, part of the fiscal cliff that we talked about a couple of months ago was only put off. How big a problem potentially is this for Chuck Hagel and the Pentagon? Tomorrow, on Friday, in theory, 800,000 employees of the Pentagon are going to be sent home. And they're going to be sent home... Uh, on so-called furlough, in other words, without pay. And because there is a sequestration, you know, there's a, a, a money grab, a bank grab, by the Treasury of all the agencies, all the departments. Now, that's the theory. There's a meeting today later on with Congress to try and sort this one. But it's happened a couple of times before, and it could happen this time for real. It'll be a one-day thing, but the money saved is the Americans uh, or, or, the, or the White House saying, we've got to do this, otherwise we can't pay anybody out of the budget. Uh, so Chuck Hagel uh, is going to be at the helm for dealing with whatever the result of that is. He certainly sounds like a, a, an interesting character, um, not least because he's had his own party, the Republicans, opposing him, and he's now part of a, a, a Democrat administration. He's not going to be boring, is he? He's not boring. Uh, Chuck Hagel's going to be boring. I've been sort of in and up for about sort of 20 years. And one of the things that uh, uh, is, is fascinating about him is that he looks at something, says it, and then somebody has to say, I think what Mr. Hagel did was misspeak. And I think that Chuck Hagel, you're probably going to get explanations of misspeak more than anything else. One of the things he did, uh, he said that the Jewish lobbies in Washington are having too much power in the Congress and also particularly in the White House. And the Jewish lobbies then hit him. Uh, and that is one of the main reasons that his own people, his Republicans, have actually held back this long on his on his confirmation. 
And, of course, John Kerry, uh, who's the new Secretary of State, replacement for Hillary Clinton, on a bit of a, a, a Europe tour. We mentioned he's in, in Rome at the moment for these Syria discussions. He started in London. Should we read anything into that? Uh, first stop, London. It's the nearest. I mean, he wasn't there for very long, was he? I mean, the places he wanted to get to was Germany. Uh, he, he spent a lot of time in, time in Germany. He speaks German as, as a kid. His, his father was a diplomat there. Then to Paris, speaks French. Uh, he sees the big problems... Uh, to be resolved uh, by the French in Africa, uh, by the Germans, what can you sort of actually put together in the post-Afghan period? In Italy, he's got this meeting that's going on today. These are the places that really matter to him. You look back and, I don't know, you turn around and say it about uh, the Foreign Office and the British government, etc., and the Americans say, well, they'll come along, won't they? I mean, it's not actually the 51st date, but they'll be with us. We can rely on them. It's nice, isn't it? It was stopping in on the best friend before getting down to work, effectively. On His newest trip. best friend... Marvellous. Well, let's look at Britain's own budget issues at this point, uh, because the armed forces could have to find £11 billion of savings or cuts over the next 10 years as a result of the Chancellor's forthcoming spending review. That, the warning in a report from the Royal United Services Institute. Well, earlier this week I spoke to the head of the research at RUSI, Professor Malcolm Chalmers. The spending review happening right now is going to decide the budgets for the whole government for 2015-16, the year beyond the spending review. We already know the, the baseline on which that's going to be calculated has been cut by almost 500 million because 2014-15 budgets have been cut. I think you can anticipate a, a comparable reduction in 15-16, which means that the defence budget for 2015-16 is going to be about a billion lower than the Ministry of Defence has been planning on uh, for the last couple of years. And that's going to be hard because that's a reduction that's likely to be sustained throughout the rest of this decade. So sustain it over the rest of the decade, you're looking at 10, 11 billion pounds over a decade. decade. Yes, absolutely. You you cut 1 billion in in a budget in one year and you sustain that year after year. It's not a one-off. Then it's about 10 or 11 billion over uh, the whole period from 2015-16 onwards into the mid-2020s. Now, it's possible that if the economy turns up and there's lots of money around, then we'll get to the 2015 SDSR and there can be some uplift, uh, as indeed was anticipated when this process started a couple of years ago. I think that's looking increasingly unlikely, simply because the economy as a whole is still flatlining uh, and there's so much pressure on government budgets as a whole. So I think we can anticipate a pretty tough Uh, spending review again in 2015. The immediate question, however, is the decisions uh, being taken this year in relation to 2015. A billion pounds sounds like a huge figure, but we're looking at a defence budget of over 30 billion. Mm. Um, What would the impact of that be? Because as well, you know, when it was at the autumn statement, the the defence secretary said, well, we don't have to cut any current plans because we've got built-in buffer, effectively. I think the the Defence Secretary at the time of the autumn statement was referring to the cuts in defence spending for 2013-14 and 2014-15, where he's absolutely right that by moving spending between different years, you can manage those reductions pretty successfully. It won't be that easy, but it's possible. Uh, But the the problem is, though that cut, particularly the cut in 2014-15, is creating a new baseline on which future budgets will then be uh, decided. So uh, because the baseline for 2014 is going to be lower, every subsequent year has to be lower. And the MOD has not factored that into its current plans. 
So, in terms of how it makes that kind of savings, what kind of impact could that have? What, will we see more equipment going, more people going? Well, at the moment, the government is, is still saying that it's going to protect the, the equipment budget in real terms, so it's going to continue to increase the equipment budget after inflation by 1% per year. And that will put more pressure on the non-equipment budget, on personnel in particular, because personnel is the biggest component of the non-equipment budget, but also in, in terms of infrastructure spending, rebasing, and, and indeed maintenance of bases. So it's going to be across the board, but I think... Personnel is, I think, pretty high in the list, and I think, actually, I think the the MOD will struggle to maintain the personnel levels it's planning for 2015 after this. Uh, these current redundancies are complete. It will struggle to maintain that in the years thereafter. Professor Malcolm Chalmers from the Royal United Services Institute. Well, let's return to Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. What do you think losing a billion pounds a year would mean to Britain's defence and armed forces? I think it will be cumulative. I agree very much with what Malcolm Chalmers was saying about the whole question of the baseline. If this lowers the kind of base then you may get further cuts. It's going to depend hugely on Britain's financial situation, but the signs are it's not going to be good for really quite a few years to come. I think the difficulty for the Ministry of Defence is that this more tricky spending environment is coinciding with some very big ticket things. I mean, it's not just the new aircraft carriers, the Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers. It's the planes that go on them. That's a very big ticket for the next four or five years. And then we're moving in, at least not quite yet, but soon, into replacement of Trident, at least the submarines. And one has to remember that even something like Aldermaston cost about a billion pounds a year, and that's regular expenditure. But you talk, take those sort of big tickets items together, and it looks like the second half of this decade is the period that is going to be really tricky. And as Malcolm Chalmers says, this new news adds to that problem, in a sense. This is, though, how defence spending works, and it is perhaps unique that you, you tend to be spending far more years ahead than any other government yes. department. Is, is there any way you know, governments, civil servants and politicians can avoid themselves facing these dilemmas? I think it is very difficult. It's part of the nature of defence industries. It is also the case that in broad terms, uh, defence industries and defence spending is not easy to handle. Uh, you have relatively few very big companies. They have a lot of influence. You have the whole problem of the revolving door, senior civil servants and senior retired military going to work for these companies. And so there's something of an old boys club, which means that well, put it mildly, profitability can be rather high and rather generous. So I won't put it stronger than that. And that adds to the problem of any Minister of Defence. I mean, Christopher, the, the Ministry of Defence says it has a grip of the budget now. Yet today we have the Commons Public Accounts Committee saying actually MOD's got a stockpile worth about £3.5 billion, pounds, things like bullets, bandages and uniforms, which the committee says they don't need. So actually, could, could some of this billion pounds a year be shaved off through further efficiency? When you've been at war for 10 years, you're always going to have a stockpile, and it's always going to be big money stockpile. After all, that's how Trotter and uh, Only Fools and Horses actually made a living after, after the Second World War. There are two things that are very important to understand. Uh, Paul, for example, mentioned the aircraft carriers. When you buy an aircraft carrier, he said, you know, you've got to buy aeroplanes, but you've also got to have surface ships, frigates... Uh, to protect them. You've got to have subsurface vessels to protect them. They have to be ticketed in. The other thing to consider, and this is uh, most important, the British government has to decide what it wants to do with its armed forces. Uh, and once you've 
commit yourself to big buck spending, which, as you say, can go on for 10, 15 years. Once you've committed yourself, it's very difficult to change that uh, option. But that's what's happening at the moment. People are starting to rethink, what are we going to do? be doing post-Afghanistan? That will determine far more on what you should be spending on your budget than what they're thinking from this uh, Strategic Defence Review uh, last time round. Paul Rogers, you, you mentioned the, the replacement of the, uh, the Trident submarines on a, a much smaller level. One of the areas we are actually investing more in is cyber. Are we at a, at a point where we're effectively having to choose whether our future lies with modern muscle or conventional capabilities? I go even further than that. It's uh, modern muscle, conventional capabilities, or what are going to be the really big security problems in the next 30 years. There's, there's growing evidence, it's almost overwhelming now, that the biggest single problem facing the world is going to be wholesale climate disruption. Now, do you defend against that and spend lots of money doing that, making yourself a kind of fortress? Or do you actually put far more effort into trying to prevent it becoming a problem? That's the kind of big issue which doesn't figure very much in defence thinking, but I think it should. And certainly when one talks to military who are used to thinking long term, they will debate this with you very vigorously and often very positively. Of course, in, in the grand scheme of things, many of our allies are also having to cut defence spending. The MOD say actually we'll, we'll stay the fourth largest defence budget in the world. Does this mean actually the balance will stay the same or could there be a long-term shift in the world's military might? Well, you could certainly see a, see a shift towards China. And I think given the problems in the United States, frankly, there is going to be de a decrease in defence spending there. So there will be changes. But you still come back to the basic issue that if you're about serious long-term conflict prevention, that is not just a military matter. And you've got to factor in the other issues you're going to make sense of that. Uh, Christopher, we're expecting to hear from the government soon on how they plan to bring all troops back from Germany by 2020. I mean, is, is that somewhere where they could you know, make, find some of this saving? Uh, you may actually spend more money, you see, because, for example, if you, if you decide to put, and we will, sort of rebasing, which we'll know about, perhaps more about it next week, uh, rebasing, let's say, in a couple of the Scottish air bases, or one of them at least, that actually costs quite a lot of money to actually remove people and put them elsewhere, and but you don't save it from where you were. But we're talking about peanuts here. It's in capital the investment them, though, some would argue, to, to, to save running, longer term running costs. Uh, it doesn't actually make that much difference in as much that you've got... It's, let's suppose you put a brigade, let's suppose you put 6,000 guys into, into new accommodation. They'd be in accommodation anyway. What we're really talking about here is what does Britain want to do with its forces for the next sort of 20 years? What does it need to, to have to, to, to do that? And also the, it, there's one further point. Uh, how much does it go along with the whole NATO concept that you ought to have a 2% uh, percentage of your GMP or GDP to, to actually pay for defence? That no longer matters. It's what do you want to do with your defence? Paul Rogers, very briefly, do you think the government have painted themselves into a p political corner by promising to increase equipment spending when they actually are finding themselves without more money overall to spend? I think they probably are, and if the national economy does not get better and deteriorates, then they re really will be painted in. To a corner. Okay, Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. This is BFBS Cigarette. This week, the veterans of the Arctic Convoys and Bomber Command have received the welcome news that they are to get long-awaited honours for their service in the Second World War. 
One of those veterans is 93-year-old Commander Eddie Grenfell, who almost drowned when his convoy supply ship to Russia was blown up. He has been seriously ill in hospital with cardiac problems, but he plans to be well enough to receive his medal from the Chief of Defence Staff next month. A reporter, Victoria Smith, has been to Portsmouth's Queen Alexandra Hospital to see him. Commander Grenfell is one of a handful of survivors of the treacherous Arctic convoys which carried vital food, fuel and ammunition to the beleaguered Russian Red Army. He's been fighting 16 years for a medal to recognise the dangerous work they did in full sight of enemy planes, ships and U-boats. Winston Churchill called the mission across the icy Arctic waters the worst journey in the world. Eddie was admitted to hospital on his 93rd birthday with heart problems, but he's told me how he was feeling about finally getting his medal. Delighted, naturally, but terribly disappointed because um, I'm still here. There couldn't be more than about 200 of us left and all of my chums who should have had that medal at the end of the war, like everyone and else like Burma, Pacific, they haven't received it. Now it's too late for them. So can you confirm that General Richards will be presenting you with the medal? Yes. He wrote to me a long time ago and said he was coming down to present me with a medal. And uh, I, I said that there was nothing on there about it being confidential. It's fair to say there were some fears that you and others like you wouldn't be here to receive your medal. Thank God I am. Thank God you are. So we're going to hang on in there. Well, I hope so too. And uh, I hope you put it across to, to not only help me, but to help all of my chums. And by that I mean the people who are still in uniform so that they will never have to go through this, through this again. That's what I want. Now, you're obviously pleased that the medal design is more or less your design, but there's a slight problem, isn't there? I wanted to see the colours of all the people who fought up there. Navy blue for the uh, Royal Navy, light uh, blue for the Royal Air Force, red for the Army, a big cap, white for the Arctic, and green for the Merchant Navy. They left the Merchant Navy out. Eddie still has a few weeks to wait, but he plans to be out of hospital and at his best in time for the big day. Victoria Smith. Uh, Christopher, this has been a very long wait for these veterans, both of the Arctic convoys and also of Bomber Command. Why has it taken so long? Why weren't they recognised before this? Well, basically because uh, there are all sorts of things, all sorts of events, all sorts of operations, all sorts of long-term operations uh, that will now be queuing up and they'll want a medal for it. And basically, if you, if you were in the Second World War and you got a medal for, uh, for your part in, let's say, uh, Burma, Far East campaign or the Atlantic medal or whatever, that's what you got. You didn't need to have a clasp pinned on. Uh, I was told my aunt about it because my uncle was in, uh, in, in and he's dead. And she said, am I going to get one of these medals? And I said, I haven't got a, I haven't got a clue, darling. Um, do you want one? And she said, oh, I don't know. She said, it has been so long now, I'm not sure where I'd put it. Where I'd put it. She could put it alongside his two DSOs, of course. And we heard uh, just how much it means to Eddie Grenfell. Finally this week, Benedict XVI is spending his last few hours as Pope. His decision to resign takes effect this evening. He spent most of the day inside the Vatican before flying 
by helicopter to the papal summer residence Castel Gandolfino. Uh, Christopher Lee, it's a big event on the world stage. The Vatican is a state in its own right, but does the Pope actually have the world power that he once had? Yeah, when you think about it, he is the leader of one-sixth of the world uh, of the practicing uh, Catholics, and in fact even the non-Catholic uh, uh, practice uh, Catholics. The other thing is that if you look at revolutionary theology, which is a proper subject now, uh, and you look at what's happened in uh, Central America and Indonesia, which is the biggest uh, collection of uh, Islam, for example, Revolutionary theological uh, parsons or priests, etc., have actually had to be stamped on sometimes by the Pope himself because they were having too much political effect. So, Does he have influence among politicians? Uh, I don't think that he has any more influence than you'd expect from another world leader, but it's very interesting, isn't it? Tell me which other religious leader would have got such press in these conditions. And briefly, the most visible change, the departure of his Swiss guards. Quite an interesting ceremony later. The Helvetians. These are the guys that have been uh, protecting popes for 500 years. They are um, they're Swiss. Uh, they have to be Swiss Catholics. They have to be five foot eight tall. They have to have done two years in the, in the Swiss army, etc., etc. They're proper guys and they're volunteers. Um, but interestingly, tonight, when he no longer becomes pope, he's no longer pope, they will simply, very quietly salute and walk away from him with their halberds, those big battle axes with the spike on the top, and he will be just uh, by himself once again. It's going to be quite an iconic image we will see on our TVs. Thank you very much for your time this week, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, and also thanks to Professor Paul Rogers from Bradford University. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP, and you can listen again to this week's programme if you missed any of it on our website, bfbs.com forward slash news. Kate's back next week, but from me, James Hurst, Thanks for listening and goodbye.